When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, this is Shirley Jones, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Who was Jack Warner? He was a stand-up comic with a mustache and a cigar in his mouth. And when he walked into a room, the room would light up one way or the other. And if somebody had to guess what he did for a living, they would never, ever imagine that he was a movie mogul or the head of a studio. Ed Robertson, welcoming you to this week's edition of TV Confidential, radio talk show about television that will welcome back Emmy Award-winning broadcaster and comedian Fritz Coleman. Later on the hour, Fritz Coleman, the affable weatherman for NBC4 here in Los Angeles for nearly 40 years, while national audiences have known Fritz for his eight appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and his appearance in one of the very last Perry Mason movies starring Raymond Burr. Since retiring from NBC4 in 2000, Fritz Coleman has returned to performing stand-up comedy. As a matter of fact, he has a brand new special called Unassisted Living in which he channels his inner George Carlin while sounding off on a number of -of slice-of-life issues that affect all of us. We'll tell you more about that when Fritz Coleman joins us later on in this hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll open up the hour by welcoming to Gregory Orr. Gregory Orr, son of William T. Orr, the man who headed the television division at Warner Brothers from 1956 through 1965, the era in which Warner Brothers was responsible for a huge chunk of ABC's primetime lineup. Gregory Orr also an accomplished writer, producer, and filmmaker in his own right for more than 30 years. As a matter of fact, calendar year 2023 marks the 30th anniversary of the release of Greg's very first film, a feature-length documentary about the life of his grandfather, pioneering movie mogul Jack Warner, and the history of Warner Brothers Pictures. Uh, Greg has not only remastered that film as part of a 30th anniversary re-release, I understand that the re-released version of Greg's film is the first time it has been shown complete as it was intended since Greg first made it in 1993. We'll get into all of that in just a second. Gregory Orr, welcome to TV Confidential. It's great to be here, Ed, and I was listening to you recently, so I love your program, and the last one about uh, science fiction is always a favorite subject of mine. <laughs> Terrific. That's always good to know. Um, this is a marvelous film. It, it is crisp. It is clear. The, the archival footage is... I mean, it, if, if I didn't know that it was made 30 years ago, I would think it was brand new, because it's just it's very, it's very vivid, and it's fun to see... People like Ephraim uh, Zimbalist and Vincent Sherman, and uh, some some other people that I that, that I got to know a little bit uh, as a result of my Maverick book a few years back. 
alive again on the screen, one of whom is your father, Bill Orr. I'm so uh, delighted to hear that you had interviewed him 30 years ago for your book. You had that experience of, uh, of hearing his stories, which I grew up hearing. Uh, I wasn't allowed to see the Warner Brothers TV shows he was making because they were past my bedtime <laughs> as a kid. I have to wait many years to see those shows. But uh, he certainly was uh, uh, generous in sharing all the stories he had working at Warner Brothers and his own acting career before that. And certainly many stories about his father-in-law, my grandfather, Jack Warner. So I grew up surrounded by this extension of family being called Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers TV. And he was good. For, my father was very good friends with some of the writers and a couple of the producers, more so than actors. And so I'd hear that those stories, too, as they came over, those writers like Jerry Davis and so forth would come over and uh, I'd hear all those stories. So when my grandfather died in uh, 1978 and then my grandmother died in 1990, their house was being put up uh, for sale. A whole way of life, of Hollywood life, was going on to the auction block. And I knew this was time to make something, to preserve it and to include my father, include a television story within that larger story of Jack Warner and the founding and creation and the the, uh, the last days of his tenure at Warner Brothers. The end product is Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, 19, uh, Greg's feature-length documentary about uh, Jack Warner and um, Harry Warner and Abe Warner and Sam Warner, the founders of Warner Brothers, uh, motion picture. Uh, the, the, the film was originally released in um, 1993. It was made available for television broadcast on PBS, but not in its full length. And, it, and if I remember correctly, before we started recording, even the PBS version was not shown on, in, in the United States. It was only shown in other countries, right? That's correct. Nobody wanted it in the United States, which I was shocked by. Why? Um, <laughs> It maybe didn't fit into a format. It was it was ran 104 minutes at the time. Uh, it's personal only at the beginning and sort of the end. The rest is really Jack Warner's story, and a little bit of my relationship and going up to the big house as a child. I talk about a little bit in the beginning and and wrap it up a little bit at the end. But uh, I really don't know why. I do know it never played at a film festival in the U.S., but it did play at the London Film Festival and Munich Film Festival, and it was received very well overseas. And so those were the only audiences that saw the full-length version. PBS International wanted it. They said, we can sell a 56-minute version, but we can't sell a 104-minute version. So I cut it down with the, editor, the original editor, and that's what played overseas for years until it fell out of their catalog eventually, maybe in 2019. PBS stopped selling it, and I decided to remake it. So this is really the first time uh, audiences have seen the full uh, we cut it down a little bit to 101 minutes. This is the first time the audiences anywhere have seen the full-length version. The full-length version of Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, uh, unvarnished look at uh, the life and career of one of the founders of Warner Brothers and really one of the pioneers of the American film industry is available uh, for streaming on demand, all major platforms, Apple TV, YouTube, Vimeo, it's also available uh, by the time this program airs on all major platforms where DVDs are sold, including MovieZing.com, Z-Y-N-G, MovieZing.com. Use promo code JACK through the end of August, and you'll receive a 10% discount off your purchase, MovieZing.com. 
Amazon.com. It will also soon be available on Amazon.com and wherever else DVDs are sold. You mentioned that, okay, there's a little bit of your personal story at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, but for the most part, it's you talking to uh, either family members or people who, who worked with Jack Warner. Was it hard to separate the filmmaker, Greg, from the, this is a member of my family, Greg, or is, is it a matter of at some point you don't think about that because you think about, okay, I'm, I'm making a documentary and, and the way documentaries work is that the content is based on the stories that people tell you. No, that's true. And I went to film school and I didn't study documentaries per se, but I certainly had classes in documentary and I watched a lot of documentaries on television, PBS. I was always watching documentaries. So I, you know, the, the way those looked and sounded was inculcated a bit in me, but I wasn't a formal student of documentaries. And this movie was my first documentary, so figuring it out as I go. But it was important that I get the story down and that people were as comfortable as possible telling me their truth, the, the stories they remembered, the good and the bad. I was willing to look at my grandfather, who's actually my step-grandfather. My grandmother married him when my mother was around nine years old, and my mother lived up at that big house with them, and I grew up knowing him as my grandfather and along with my brother and sister. But he was always Grandpa Jack, but yeah. I mean... Um, so with his passing, the passing of my grandmother, I really wanted to preserve what it was, what he was like, because he was such a ringmaster. He was such a central figure in all our lives, my family's life growing up. My father worked for Warner Brothers. My mother had been an actress at Warner Brothers in her first film role in Casablanca, playing a young woman from Bulgaria. Um, so my brother had had a summer job there. Went so really, Warner Brothers loomed over. He was it was just the house on the hill that loomed over the village below where we lived and I wanted to preserve because it was a fascinating history as I heard it just anecdotally at home and diving into it gave me a chance to explore something I'd always had an interest in but I had to do it in a in a real way that I can make a film because I had to raise money for it mm-hmm. finally when I decided to make it a full length and you know Warner Brothers cooperated but they wanted to make sure that I'm making a real film also so it really required me to be not just a kid, uh, you know, talking about Grandpa Jack in the great <laughs> studio. It had, you know, he was a swell guy, you know. <laughs> Little did he know that just people hated him, and uh, he did things that that uh, he shouldn't have done, and and uh, some, some despicable stuff. So getting into all that, I was willing to unpack it and see it, and uh, and then what's the best way to tell it? And I told it with these great interviews, a lot of film clips, and. And still photos, family photos, Warner Brothers photos, archival footage, location footage. I went to Poland to film the small town where the Warner family had come from. I went to Youngstown, Ohio, where they grew up. So I had all that material, but 30 years later, I knew it could have been, it could be a better film. There was material that was not illuminated. I didn't have access to it. I had learned so much in 30 years. So how to reshape the movie and bring it into the modern world of high definition. I had made it in the old standard of uh, NTSC standard definition, and that just doesn't hold up anymore. You can't release that anywhere. So it really was how to do this and go back to Warner Brothers and say, will you give me 4K, high, super high definition uh, clips again and any other photos? And that extended across the line. And those things we couldn't get new versions of, such as the interviews, um, most of those people had passed away. 
finding a process that uh, would upright them with, with the clarity that you mentioned. Gregory Orr is with us via Zoom. Gregory Orr, son of William T. Orr, the original head of television production at Warner Brothers Pictures, and the grandson, step-grandson of Warner Brothers co-founder Jack L. Warner. Calendar year 2023 marks the 100th anniversary of the founding of Warner Brothers Pictures. And to mark the occasion, Greg has just re-released the director's cut of his 1993 documentary, Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, an unvarnished look at a founding father of the American film industry, told through Warner Brothers film clips, personal home movies, exclusive interviews with such luminaries as Shirley Jones, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Pat Buttram, Shirley McRae, and Debbie Reynolds, plus more than 40 minutes of new material, all in high definition. The director's cut of Jack L. Warner, the last mogul available now, streaming on demand, all major streaming platforms. You can also find it on DVD, MovieZing.com, Z-Y-N-G, MovieZing.com. Use promo code JACK through the end of August for a 10% discount off your purchase. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item. Summertime is in full swing, and if you have dry skin, you know what happens when the weather gets warmer. More visible lines and dullness. Fortunately, our friends at Ibu Beauty can help. Their Super Duo Serum and moisturizer is all you need this summer for the perfect glow. Check them out, ibubeauty.com. That's Y-I-B-U, beauty.com, or at ibubeauty on Instagram. Use customer code ibu 50 now at checkout and receive 50% off your first order. One of the talking heads featured in your film is a film historian, Neil Gabler, and he talks about how the great stars of the golden age of Warner Brothers, the 30s and 40s, the great stars, James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, Humphrey Bogart, Errol Flynn, they, they all tended to play underdogs, and they were all, whether by design or not, they were all made in the image of Jack Warner because that's how Warner saw himself as an underdog. He did. He was also the youngest of all those kids, and uh, so he's the scrappy kid getting in trouble, and... Uh, having to listen to his, his not only his father but his older brothers who were telling him what to do so I think he, he definitely aligned himself with the underdog and uh, growing up in Youngstown, Ohio and he also hired people who had a scrappy sense of humor I mean when you think of Daryl Zanuck who obviously influenced uh, those movies and, and what movies were made it was according to Neil Gabler and to others it was a very contentious lot people were always fighting each other they're battling and there was a certain personality that that uh, conflicted personality, wanting to do something, no holds barred, not trying to put a sheen on everything, not doing an MGM musical, but something that was gritty and real whenever possible. I think Neil Gabler had just written his book, An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky to get him to kind of give a context to the whole film about who these moguls were and how it affected the movies they made. I think Betty Davis says this in one of the archival clips in the film that even when Warner Brothers put themselves on the map with the release of with not only the release but the tremendous success of the uh, the jazz singer the first uh, talking uh, movie in the US and, and Warner Brothers was the studio that cultivated all these great stars throughout the 30s and 40s there was a sheen to Warner Brothers and yet there was an image that Warner's was considered sort of a cut rate studio 
And when I heard her say that, I wrote, I wrote something down. She was talking about how Jack and the other brothers, it was always important for them to keep costs down as much as possible. They got that image for being somewhat frugal. I can understand that both from a business point of view, but I can also understand they were conservative with cost because before they became Warner Brothers, they had launched several different types of businesses, not all of which succeeded. So you can understand how you might be conservative with money once you become successful. And the other thing to remember, which is easy to forget now because we have the major studios and don't have all those struggling film companies that they that was part of the competition when they were all starting. I mean, there were hundreds of film companies like the Warner Brothers starting off an exhibition, trying to make their little movies and get, I mean, there were hundreds of them independent producers trying to get going and trying to get a foothold in this new art form, this new form of entertainment. And the Warner Brothers, because partly there were four of them, so it was a little bit like a band and they all had different jobs and skill sets, personalities, uh, they could diversify and take on different challenges. And the oldest, Harry Warner, who was very careful as a businessman to make sure the, the company had money to expand. So his relationship with bankers or any sources of money, Goldman Sachs, helped fund their early, some of their early operations. So he made sure they could expand, and that's what they did with the jazz singer. And even a little bit before, they said, okay, we have money now, and we have bankers' belief in us. We're going to buy record companies. We're going to buy theaters. We're going to blow up here and move past uh, you know, the B picture makers who were competing against and get into the A studio business. But they kept their personality and it's debatable now with superhero movies and so forth that if Warner Brothers can keep that initial personality, that challenge, those, those, those kinds of movies that you have to see because they're dealing with social issues that, that worry us, that interest us, this 100-year mark. But the Warners kept at it. I mean, my grandfather ran that studio for 50 years, a long run. And maybe he should have been eased out earlier, but he kept adapting to whatever the needs was. And it's it's not a secure business. No. That's the other thing. It's not. No, I mean, it's like any business, but particularly with, uh, with the entertainment and the motion pictures, the rule is adapt or die. And if you're not able to change with the times, you'll find yourself, to borrow a sports metaphor, instead of being four games ahead of your division, you're 10 games behind your division, and you're always playing catch-up. And I'm trying to remember, it was... Um, Sam was the brother who passed just before the release of the jazz singer, correct? And he's the one who's both responsible for getting them into the movie business. Yeah. When he stumbled upon a projector when they were all young. And he was the one who pushed them to get into sound, to work with Bell Laboratories, Western Electric, to develop sound, uh, as I'm sure your listeners know, you know, as a synchronized system. It was on a disc. Yeah. It was a crazy thing for a projectionist to have to line up your projector and this you know this phonograph disc which by the way started in the middle of the disc mm -hmm. and moved outwards the exact opposite of a long plane but that was the thing that put them over the top they made so much money off the jazz singer and, and they were ahead of the other studios so they had that year at least that they were the only ones doing this yeah every, every successful company needs to have at least one sam on the board or in their operations someone who um, is able to see beyond what's in front of them, to try to anticipate the next move 
so that you stay ahead, so that you can, so that you put yourself in a position to continue to grow. And that was his belief, even though people said, "Who needs to?" You know, we have a giant, silent movie business now, uh, a business of pantomime, I think it's been called. Mm -hmm. And in big theaters in big cities, you had an orchestra. So it was a beautiful way to make movies. I mean, those later uh, silent films, I encourage people to try to watch them. They're beautiful filmmaking and very powerful storytelling. But Warner Brothers felt, for whatever reason, we can do better, if better is the right word, but we can wire the world for sound. And they had a belief in it, even though not everybody did. Gregory Orr is the writer, producer, and director of Jack L. Warner, the Last Mogul, 1993 documentary that has been remastered and re-edited. Now it is available. The director's cut is available. The movie is available in full length for the first time ever. It includes more than 40 minutes of new material, all in high definition, including Jack Warner's controversial 1947 testimony before the House of Un-American uh, Activities Committee. Plus, it re-examines the infamous stock sale, the 1956, that resulted in uh, Jack Warner becoming sole head of Warner Brothers, but also caused a rift between his brother Harry and his brother Abe that was never, never healed. All of that is in the director's cut of Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul by Gregory Orr, now available, streaming on demand, all major platforms, also available on DVD, moviezing.com, Z-Y-N-G, moviezing.com, if you use promo code Jack, J-A-C-K, between now and the end of August, you can get Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, on DVD through moviezing.com at a 10% discount. Greg will be back next week for part two of our conversation, among other things. We'll take a look at the infamous stock sale of 1956. Plus, we'll talk about the important role that Greg's father, William T. Orr, played in the history of Warner Brothers pictures, including the prominent role that Bill Orr played in the development of nearly every major television series developed by Warner Brothers in the mid to late 1950s and the important relationship that Warner Brothers played with ABC television at the time. That's coming up next week for part two of our conversation with Gregory Orr. We hope you join us for that. In the meantime, we'll take a quick time out, then we'll welcome back Britt Coleman. We come back on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.